Welcome, everybody, to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. And this week, we are joined by uh, our favorite guests, Brad and Steve. Uh, welcome, guys. Thank you. Thank uh, you. We are discussing today, uh, amongst other things, the resurrection. Uh, that was the topic of last week's podcast episode, the teaching. Uh, and so we wanted to kind of pick up where we left off there a little bit and dig in a bit deeper. So thanks for joining us, Brad, to, to look at a few more angles of that. Good to be back. Um, yeah, it's always good to have you. We, uh, oh, I don't know, we discussed a whole bunch of stuff before I hit the live button. So uh, now i got to decide where I want to start. But um, perhaps let's start with uh, where we fall and, and perhaps where... Uh, what the common understanding is right now in terms of the resurrection. Dad made it clear during that teaching that he believes in a physical resurrection of Christ. It wasn't a metaphor. Um, and Brad, I'm wondering two things. Uh, one, uh, is that your firm understanding as well? And two, why is that important? Because it seems to me that uh, orthodoxy certainly claims that this is the truth and this is a non-negotiable uh, and everything hinges on this so why is it important that jesus physically was resurrected okay so physically you're already in a little trouble <laughs> um <laughs> why are you always picking on me man <laughs> i'm always I'm, I'm well not you but your dad i suppose no i i believe so here's what we believe for sure that christ was he he was raised from the dead that's not a metaphor. He was raised from the dead. Um, he was he was raised in a way um, that seems to include that he circumscribes the whole universe by his spirit, and yet could take material form, such that in Luke he says, "I'm not a ghost. Give me some fish. Let me show you." And he eats it. But then. He seems to be able to dematerialize, and in fact, when he materializes, he can take different forms, according to Mark 16. So, um, so there is, and then, and then when he shows Thomas's wounds, his wounds, that shows you there's a continuity between who he was before he died and after, but not just who he was, but, but that he bore the wounds is very interesting. So. And that's why we would maybe use words like physical, but when he starts doing this other stuff, then then you're like, okay, he's the same, but he's different. There's been a substantial change to his body. So I would call it a body. I would even say that that body can take material form, but it, it can be material or immaterial. And so... I'm, I sound like I'm waffling, but what I'm really trying to do is take all the scriptures seriously. So you've got these scriptures where he shows the wounds. On the other hand, when he appears to the, his friends on the road to Emmaus, you know, he doesn't, they don't see how his face has all been beaten. Something has happened. Something has happened. Now he's glorified. Now he's immortal. Paul says, now we've got an incorruptible spiritual body <laughs> and i'm like oh careful because spiritual body can sound like a spirit again and he's like i'm not just that and it okay so so 
you've got you've got Luke really insisting that this is that the the risen body of Christ. Even ha- he says, a, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. But then Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen um, that our body will not be the corruptible body we had because he says. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. I'm like, well, which is it? So I want to say, A, I have trouble holding all these verses together. I have no trouble saying Christ was raised in a body, in his body. And um, the nature of that, and we'll get into this in 1 Corinthians 15, I think. The nature of that body is, is substantially different than it had been, but there is continuity. This is the same one who walked in Nazareth. This is the one who died on a cross, was sealed in a tomb, and you won't find his bones there because he left, right? Mm-hmm. But why does it matter? Um, you've got guys like John Dominic Crossan, who popular New Testament scholar, scholar liberal uh, in the Jesus seminar tradition, and he would say, no, it, you know, it's a metaphor. And um, I just don't think the New Testament leaves room for that. Most of all, because we don't just say Christ was raised. We say Christ is risen. In other words, he is alive. Is he alive or not? Um, And is he alive in me? Okay, well, obviously, if Christ is in me, there's more going on than a physical body. Mm -hmm. But he's alive. I relate to him. When I pray, he hears me. So that's one really important reason I believe in the resurrection because I know the living Christ. The second important reason that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 15 is if Christ is not raised, neither will we be. And okay, if that's okay with you, if, if you, if, if maybe you could be a Christian who doesn't need a resurrection, maybe this life's long enough for you. It just doesn't seem that that's what the New Testament is saying at all. And so we want to say, what, is there a Christian doctrine of this? Yes, the Christian doctrine is that Christ is risen and that we shall be raised. And when we are raised, we shall be like him. The nature of our resurrection is is slipperier, is more slippery than evangelicals have made it out to be. It's not just a resuscitation. It is a glorification that Paul identifies as like as different as a caterpillar to a to a butterfly, but it's the same being. So there, I've just made it all messy, but I think the New Testament's a little bit messy on it because it's such a mystery. Yeah. Why do we always want to get it figured out? Because one of Dad's uh, favorite phrases that we're going to turn into a t-shirt for sure is embrace the paradox. And yet that's, people don't want to do that. We want to try and figure it out. What's the answer? It's like an algebra equation on a blackboard we just keep coming back to. why can't we just live with the tension? Yeah, I think that's part of the part of uh, how modernism um, wants to prove things, whether in a court or a lab. In other words, empirical or rational proofs. And so, what happened is, I grew up on this, right? Evidence that demands a verdict. Yes. Right. <laughs> and so, if I I need to be sure, I I need to prove my faith. 
It's like, well, then it's not faith. Mm. <laughs> um, but I can prove it in a lab. I can prove it in a court. I can show you in the Bible, and it's irrefutable, and all of the texts harmonize until they don't. So here's what my, my issue is. I have a very high view of Scripture where, where I want to say, let the Bible say what it says, and if you can't harmonize it, tough. Mm. It's like, no, I'm going to make it because that's my ideology of inerrancy. It has to, everything has to fit, and it's like, Wow, that's that's just not realistic to life, and it's not it's not the Bible doesn't play that game very well because it's it's written by people living in the paradox. And it's interesting to me, just a, a small point on on why it is so central and in, in, really, in one sense, non-negotiable for me, is that the the earliest writers, the earliest church fathers some of whom were, you know, sat at the feet of, of, of John, for, for example. Um, they all insisted on a physical, well, there's the word, but on a resurrection that was not a metaphor, that was not um, ghostly. And I, I want to say, and includes physical manifestations. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's just not the whole thing, right? Not the whole thing, but from the beginning, it's really important to me always, especially when I really look at the early church fathers. I mean, these are the people that were getting the straight goods from the one who taught them. And it goes right back, you know, in two streams, goes back to Paul, goes back to John. And that's really important to me. Yeah. Um, let me throw a little thought out here, on, on because, you know, it's very clear they're walking on the road to Emmaus. They don't even recognize him. One of my favorites is that postscript in John 21. And they're sitting around the breakfast, and they're kind of looking at each other and whispering, is he or isn't he? Is he or isn't he? Uh, Mary, who was so close to him, didn't know that he was the gardener until he called her by name. I think that the resurrected and therefore for us eternal reality does combine it's the mystery it's the paradox again but it's the mystery of the physical and the the something else spiritual yeah heavenly spiritual okay but but even physicality in in resurrected life i think is different um and what i wonder sometimes when when we see some miracles, you know, I was thinking while you were talking of, of some times I've, I've seen when we're out on the field, I've seen uh, medicine multiplied. Um, we know that. We counted them. There was, you know, one time there was uh, six and a half times the number of people. We had 70 pills counted out. 430 people showed up. They all got one. Now, here's the point. And, and you know, we have those stories with food, medicine, but it's that I think sometimes that that is connected to this physical reality that's a different reality, physical, spiritual reality, where, where Christ looks different, where he suddenly goes through a wall, but at the same time, he says, touch me. I think those kinds of miracles are connected to that. I think that that's the reality of heaven. There's no lack. And, and it breaks in. It's like resurrection life. Mm. 
That's really good, Steve. Breaks in when uh, when these things happen. Yeah. Where where did the multiplied loaves and bread come from? Yes. Well, they came from the bread and the loaves, but not but like but they came from heaven and um so just in terms of I know some of your folks are like me, they want, you know, let's be faithful to the scriptures. What's in the scriptures? Let me just read you two passages. So one is from Mark 16, uh, the long ending of Mark, if I can find it. Um, verse 12. And so some would say, oh, it's the long ending of Mark. And so that ask. doesn't count because it wasn't in the original. No, it's in the final form of the book. And we have received that as scripture. And I've no problem with it being an epilogue. Whether or not it was written by Mark, it's in our Bible for a reason, because we received it as the church in its final form as authoritative. Verse 12, therefore he was made manifest in another form to two of them who were walking as they were going into the countryside. So that's, so his ability then, this one who fills the universe the cosmic Christ is able to manifest himself as the one bearing the wounds, but also informs where you might not see the wounds, as one who can pass through walls and yet can eat fish, you know, uh, who says very deliberately, I'm not a ghost or a spirit, right? That said, when we talk about a spiritual body, I think we're saying more even than the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. So I just want to read one paragraph from 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? So it's like, what kind of body are we going to have? Foolish one. Or how does Hart put it? He says, he's very funny. Um, verse 36. Ridiculous man. <laughs> um, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not know that body that shall be. You do not know. I mean, he just comes right and says, you don't know. But mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God, give, God gives it a body as he pleases. And to each seed, its own body. All flesh is not the same. But there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another flesh of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial or heavenly bodies and terrestrial bodies. That's physical. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory of the stars. And, one, and so basically he's... Uh, he gets to 42 and he says, so also the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but it's raised up in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised up in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised up in power. It's sown a natural body and it's raised a spiritual body. Maybe we'd stay out of trouble then if we just use Bible words for it, right? Hmm. We had a natural body. We die and we're raised with a spiritual body. What does that mean? We don't know. <laughs> hmm. um, but the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is a Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And it is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. 
as we've been born in the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we will be made in the image of the resurrected Christ. That's why it really, really matters, I think. Yeah. And, and how that will look exactly. Pretty mysterious. I would, I would only add one PS footnote. It's not, it's not clear to me that the, that the resurrected body of Christ that Thomas encounters in the upper room that there's not a f that there may also be a further glorification in Christ's ascension mm. I don't know I'm happy to say I don't know but but it's possible that we're seeing stages we see his crucified body we see his risen body and now he is an ascended body but maybe that's the same I don't know <laughs> hmm. but is he alive that's the thing right and will you live? So anyway, rambling on, but I, I think these are all these are all like current debates right now in resurrection theology, and I'm happy to be kind of pretty conservative on it because I just think it, the early church was clear. Do we run the risk uh, of being too? I'm gonna I'm gonna use this phrase in a different way than it has before I think, but being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good, and what it, in this context what I mean is, are do we run the risk of going too far down that path of you know our uh, a phrase, an orthodox phrase I think is divinization uh, in terms of that process of glorification getting ahead of it where we're trying to be operating in our our glorified self our you know that will be one day achieved to the place where we're just chasing after the heavenly things so much that we are not relatable to human beings who are here i'm totally with you on that tim yeah we become gnostic we forget that we forget that Christ dignified humanity and took flesh to heal flesh, not to rid us of it, yeah. to glorify it, not to dehumanize us. Mm -hmm. So Christ is not only a revelation of, of, of true God, he's also a revelation of true humanity and our destiny. But, but it's not disincarnate. That's, that's, I think, the important thing, right? He became incarnate, and there's a sense in which that's forever. Yeah. Uh, but he's yeah. also, in becoming flesh, he's transformed the flesh into something that w that w won't be in a in a cloud somewhere. You know, we will relate to a restored cosmos creation. Dad, uh, during your teaching, you used the word cosmic gospel, um, and. Uh, you know, it really in reference to that concept of the work of the cross was much bigger than we ever uh, yes. could imagine. And it was a, a recreation of all things. Yes. What are, what are the dangers? Because you talked about even in last week's episode when you were teaching, you know, you kind of made comment about the, you know, have you prayed the, your prayers so that you you can be assured you know where you're going when you die sort of thing and and how that question is i think you're saying that that question is betraying an, an understanding of a small gospel um or a small understanding of the gospel perhaps is a better way of putting that uh what are the dangers of only knowing a, a personal salvation a personal jesus rather than a cosmic gospel well, it depends what you mean by danger. 
Um, you know, if we're talking about uh, spending eternity uh, with Christ, um, with the communion of saints, etc., I don't think you're in danger if, if, if your gospel is simply praying to receive the Lord. But I think what it, the danger is the worldview it gives us. I think it gives us uh, really a wrong view of the world. It, it, it's so dualistic. It's so us and them, in and out, right and wrong. I think that it, give, it the danger is you have, I believe, a very impoverished experience of the triune God. If you're satisfied, okay, I prayed the prayer, I'm going to heaven, which, by the way, would have made no sense. You could correct me if you disagree, Brad, but I think that a gospel of pray this and go to heaven would have been uh, craziness. It would have been, you know, whatever, science fiction to the early church. Um, because what it's about is Jesus is Lord of everything. You know, the, and that's what I mean by the cosmic gospel. So is there a danger? Well, I don't think your your uh, eternal state with God is, is endangered if you have that small of a gospel. But for the reasons that I just said off the top of my head, in terms of the way we relate to the world around us, the dualism, and... And just such an impoverished relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because after all, John 17, 3, right? This is eternal life that you might know, experience with great intimacy. And uh, and and we just settled for just crumbs. That's yeah, my answer. It's very narrow, isn't it? So, yeah, what and what I'm hearing there, too, is, is that... Um, when we talk about a cosmic gospel, I'm very comfortable with that word. It's rooted, cosmic redemption, it's rooted in Maximus the Confessor. So this is nothing new. Yeah, Maximus got it from me. Yeah. Well, he <laughs> reads your stuff. It's worth reading. Yeah. Um, <laughs> maybe literally. Um, but this idea that, like, our, it's not just the redemption of my heart. It's the redemption of my body. Not just the redemption of the individual, but the redemption of our society, our culture. Like so, there's a social element to the gospel in terms of how we how we structure our relationships, and then to creation itself. So in Christ, we don't only have the union of of deity and humanity; we have the union of creator and creation. And yes, it's just about restoring Christians, or even just people. He's about the restoration of all things, right? Yeah. And so, um, hey, Brad, that will affect me. Something, just a, a technical note. Something tweaked. I don't know if your microphone moved or what, but it, yeah, you just got a bit quiet there. So, okay, yeah, I'm just. And so, this affects in terms of how I relate to the environment. Then, yes, um, that we are stewards of of God's good creation, not not exploiters exploiters who need to use it up quickly before He raptures us out of here. Well, we may as well, because, you know, basically uh, everything material is, is sinful and wrong, and, and it, he doesn't care. He doesn't right, care. Right. He cares about um, being, being in heaven. I heard this from a, through a pastor. Like, this is why we should dump oil waste into, like, Lake Ontario, because Lake Ontario is going to be gone in 10 years anyway. The Lord will return, and it will all be consumed by fire. Maybe the oil will even help it burn. You know, just like... You heard that from a pastor. Uh, 
secondhand one yeah. of his congregants. That is that's pretty scary stuff. Yeah. Um, wow, I I encourage people to read the Bible. <laughs> so, Brad, are you able to tell us the history of where this kind of this concept of pray the prayer and and secure your eternal fate has come from? What was there a moment in history where we started thinking that way? Well, I mean, it's not entirely. It's not entirely w- without foundation. So, for example, so let's start on the good side, and, and then maybe we can work out together how where it went sideways. The, um, I think it's through a reduction. So, biblically speaking, there was an announcement of good news with a call to respond. I believe in that. So, what is the response we're calling for? And so, in the New Testament, in the Gospels themselves, the response was uh, that they would demonstrate the response by some sort of confession of Christ that where they where they were baptized, and that was Jesus' prescribed means of response to demonstrate your faith in Him. So, I don't want to belittle that. Um, later, then they're like, okay, they're saying they believe, but some of them, if we baptize them right away, they're renouncing their faith when the persecution comes. So were they Christians or not? And what do we do with these people? So they decided we better have catechism so they know what they're getting into, which is fine because people would follow Jesus for quite a while before they'd be baptized, some some of them. They, they would listen. And so... Um, but then the question is, well, are they a Christian before they got baptized then if that process is a year? What if they die during that year? It's like, well, no, you're still a Christian because you had decided to follow Jesus. Well, how do you know they've decided to follow Jesus? Well, because they, you know, and so we tried to lock down a form of response divorced from baptism. And maybe that would look like repenting of your sins surrendering your life to Christ, inviting them in. So I don't even have a big problem with the sinner's prayer. I prayed it. I liked it. I think I still prayed. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's when you reduce it to a magical incanta- incantation, and irrespective of the salvation already accomplished at the cross and still forthcoming at the resurrection and ongoing in my life. So in other words... The mistake is just um, to think you're in or out based on that particular moment. That's what settles the whole thing. And it's just like, well, okay, that's not scriptural at yeah. all. But so, and Randy just typed in a comment wrong. here, which I think is a helpful one to bring us back to Jesus' command yeah. about go and baptize them <laughs> in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So yeah, where does baptism come from? <laughs> well, I mean, baptism was a common, a common practice in Judaism. And John the Baptist picks it up as a as a way to um, to identify, uh, you know, a, a conversion to, uh, or of your orientation towards God. And then Christ picks it up, and his disciples are baptizing people, and then he tells us to go do it. So I'm 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 a bit loath to discard that as this, you know, just it's this afterwards thing you do as as maybe a symbol. It's like. 
it's stronger than that in the New Testament. Yeah, because I, yeah, I mean, Peter says Testament. the same thing, right? He preaches that great sermon. They say, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Yeah. So I'm, not, I'm just saying, let's not reduce it all to a prayer or a baptism. We see there's a bigger thing involved in the salvation journey, but that's one of them. Yeah. You know, a deliberate, a deliberate initiation into, into this body. Where, um, and so I think one of the reasons for that is because Christ wants an embodied faith, and he wants an embodied response. And so this is, this, here's an interesting thing. There's, um, I know somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder, and they, need to, they needed to surrender. And so they kept trying to just pray a spiritual prayer of surrender every day. And I mean, that helped a little bit, but they were down into like 68 pounds and dying. And I said, we need to embody your surrender somehow. Because they said, well, I've surrendered my heart, but not my body. Oh, that's the problem. So um, in this case, and the person's not even Orthodox, but I had them start doing an Orthodox um, prostration where you go down like a Muslim, forehead to the ground and back up as a sign of death and resurrection before every meal. And um, so far, she's gained 13 pounds since she started doing that. It's because she embodied her surrender. And I think that's what baptism's about, too. Embodied faith in our identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and Jesus, it, we're so Gnostic. We just want to we want to disembody our faith. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. So I don't need baptism or communion or anything. It's like, no, no, we have an incarnated faith that looks like something where you engage the body along with the soul and the spirit. Does that make sense? It does. Randeep has typed in a second follow-up comment, just quoting Mark 16, 16, whoever believes. I like this Randeep and- guy, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hi, Randeep. I'm glad he's got Wi-Fi today, because uh, the last few times I tried to connect with him, he was in the dark. Uh, the power I will kiss was his forehead if I see him. <laughs> Um, so he, he's quoting Mark sixteen sixteen. whoever so believes and is baptized will be saved. Yeah. One of the, I don't know if he's experienced this, but I know in some of the, um, the house church movements in, in Southern India, um, baptism became very important in this way. People would, let's say they, they would have a new believer, but they still had all their Hindu gods. And Jesus becomes part of the band pantheon of uh, or what he, of, of the hindu gods and then but they start praying so there's like a seeker but they're like deliberately now yes i'm incorporating christ into my pantheon and then what they were discovering is that over time mm. without for- pushing a conversion um the, the seeker would discover that Jesus was the only one answering their prayers and it made all the other gods redundant hmm. without pushing them to remove their, what do you call it? The little thing of idols in their home. Um, when they decided for themselves, I don't need these other gods anymore. I'm just going to follow Jesus. That's when they would baptize them. Now, I know there's different models, but, but in that case, it's like that. So it was a declaration that Christ isn't just one among the gods for me anymore. But isn't it our him. job as uh, evangelists, in this case, to make that clear? Hey, you don't need those other gods. They're useless. Isn't that effectively what uh, what Paul did in Acts 17? 
when he said, look, you don't need all this other stuff. Do you, let me introduce you to the one. Well, that's, I don't have a problem with that either. I'm just saying why, in this case, baptism marked a new stage in their development. Gotcha. Now, yeah. whether you, and I don't also know if that had to do with persecution around proselytization. It was a way to do evangelism without proselytizing. It's like you get them to follow Jesus. If it's the living Jesus, he will make it clear. And he did. And he, and he did. And I think that, uh, I don't know if Randy, who's listening, uh, hello, Randy. Uh, Randy. Yep. Um, uh, I know that because he and I've talked about this many times uh, and uh, the same model um, of not saying, okay, now you've received Jesus. You've got to get rid of your idols. Let the work of the spirit do that. Let me say this about baptism that I believe okay. and um, I believe that it is not uh, what kind of word do I want to use? Um, because there is something mystical in the sacrament, so I don't want to say a sacrament. It, it's not just a, a, let's say, a form. It's not just something you do as an act of obedience. I believe that what we see clearly in Mark 1, uh, well, we see it through the, through the most of the synoptics, that when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit encountered him. The Father said, you are my beloved son. My experience for years, and I have no idea how many baptisms in how many countries I've done, but my experience is, especially with those who just come to Christ without, you know, understanding enough to say, yes, I believe, um, is how often they have a powerful encounter with a Holy Spirit that they didn't yet even know existed. Hmm. That, you know, last year I did one, and it was just barely above freezing, and it was in a village, a gypsy village, and, and it was just freezing. And the guy, we started to baptize people, and he went down, and he came up, and he was red hot. He says, I'm so hot. And when I put my hands on him to pray for him, I thought, wow, you sure are. That is a manifestation. And, and by the way, when he came up, he just came up, well, I'll just say full of the Spirit. And I could tell story after story. India, we, we've had, I've had to drag people out, and they might have drowned because they weren't going to stand. I believe baptism is really important. I know, I think it was uh, John Christostom I was reading last week that he only got baptized the week before he became a bishop. But, um, but that was... Ambrose, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that Ambrose? Yeah, so yeah. That was, you know, that was quite a long time later. I believe, I encourage people, get baptized because it isn't just something you're supposed to do. There's a, there's a spiritual encounter. And wouldn't the enemy want us to wait and go through a three-month baptism class? And all of us who've been pastors know what it is to start with 25 people in your baptism class. And, and when it's all done, you got four people. That's because if we baptize them, I believe they're being empowered. Yeah. I don't know how we got from the resurrection to baptism, but at any rate, for me, I believe it is absolutely essential, and that's why I encourage people to get baptized right away. Yeah. To me, it, it feels like it's another one of these Gnostic moves. Where Adjust we, that microphone again for me, bud. Okay. okay, so here's the... Is that better? Yeah. Okay, so here, it's one of these Gnostic moves again, and, and that I think 
comes with, I'll call it low church, and by that I don't mean inferior, I just mean informal and where where these things are treated, you can't hardly get baptized or have communion in some churches without them assuring you this is just a something. It's just this. So it's minimizing. Yeah. In the early church, they collapsed all of this quite often into one one whole thing. So you'd hear the gospel. You would you you would receive your baptism, and in that baptism, they saw it as a that this is the breaking of the waters of your rebirth. Mm. You know when a woman's water breaks. Yeah. This is what's happening, and in this, then they would also include the exorcisms and the outpouring of the spirit. So we don't have a second baptism of the spirit. It all happens in one. So we started, we started just trying to do this um, when we were at Fresh Wind Church, where we'd say, okay, um, they would confess Jesus as Lord. We'd we'd baptize them. Oh, and and they would renounce. And this is in the Orthodox liturgy too. I renounce the devil and all his works. And in fact, they'd say, now now face whatever direction and spit on the devil three times and go. <laughs> it was a renunciation. It's part of the. It's so fun. <laughs> and then and then they baptize you and then they anoint you with oil and pray for a filling of the spirit and boom out comes like whatever tongues or impact. What I experienced as a little Baptist boy, I talked to my my pastor into baptizing me in a church where they never did it with someone who was only seven or eight years old. And I was, it was always for like 16 year olds or whatever, but he took an hour with me and I talked him into it. After I did it, I, I felt illumination of the spirit. When I read the scriptures, I knew and I could feel it and I knew what was happening. And I'm going, this is bizarre. I'm more hungry for the scriptures and I, and I get them. Having read the Bible now for another almost 50 years, I feel like that clarity was real. When my oldest son got baptized at the same age, same thing. The, the, night, the two nights after he got baptized, he read through the whole Gospel of Matthew in two nights. And I'm like, this is an eight-year-old. So I, I, I'm like, yeah, something's going on that's real. It's not just at anything. Steve, is it, how would you respond to this? Because I, I like your word essential. How do you respond to those who are like, well, you know, the thief on the cross didn't get baptized, and now you sound legalistic. And now, how, how do we respond to that? Because I'd like to. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, which leads me to, I'd like to talk about paradise in a few minutes, if that's all right, Tim. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, for me, it isn't... Uh, how do I respond to it? I'm saying, I'm not giving you something legalistic. I'm not giving you something to tick off. I'm not, I'm not, I'm telling you this is, this is uh, uh, an, inf I would use really non-theological language. And I would say this, this is, uh, this is a, a means by which God um, fills you. It is not just a symbol means is a good word yeah. yeah and and it is a means by which the lord fills you with his spirit impacts you so that's what i say to people i i and and if somebody's saying well i think it just feels legalistic then in one sense i'm i'm 
I don't say it, but I think, well, then I don't think you should get baptized. <laughs> right. Because, so I was going to say, it's also the means of our first act of obedience to Christ. Yeah. He says, follow me. Yeah. And then he says, get baptized. And we're like, no. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. well, are you following me or not? I'm giving you a, like a, the easiest possible way to make yeah, your exactly. first act of obedience. Like, just get some water from the ditch or something like <laughs> Philip did. <Yeah. laughs> so this and is not too hard. It, even in the scriptures, it's very important, isn't it? I mean, very. Peter gives us analogies. Uh, Paul does. You know, they say, you know, the Red Sea, uh, the the Noah's Ark, all these ways they have of saying this is this is going from one life into another. Yeah, and it so it was pretty important to the the writers of our holy scripture. So that's what I think. Totally Tim, with you, man. Could I ask, son? Uh, maybe I should just keep quiet. But if you'd like to talk about the thief on the cross and paradise, I'd be curious to hear. Yeah, go for it. Absolutely. Okay. So, I get asked this a lot, Brad, maybe you do too. Well, what's, is paradise the same as heaven? And where did the thief meet with Jesus that day when he didn't resurrect for three days? And I talked about this in the teaching people heard last week, but I'd love to hear from you, uh, what you what you think. I mean, I referred to N.T. Wright's phrase, life after life after death, and and so forth. But what do you think about this issue of paradise and heaven and so forth? Uh, so I'll say two things about it. I was trying to find a quote, but I, I couldn't find it. Um, so I'll do it my best from memory. Uh, so for those who really like N.T. Wright, I'm going to start with that. N.T. Wright insists that our final destiny is not heaven in the sky in our spirit by and by. You know, ultimately, we're looking at a restored cosmos with resurrection bodies that interact with this creation. I really like that. Um, but I don't hear him saying there is no conscious existence with Christ now. I don't hear him saying that, but I do hear some of his disciples saying it, where they're like, um, there, is no, there is no existence between your death and your final resurrection. It's either, you know, and so they would treat it as either a fast-forward time machine or a, or a um, soul sleep or something like that. And yeah. I, I just don't think that's what Wright is saying. If I if I hear him right, um, uh, then I hear Paul talking about an intermediate state before the final resurrection that is a conscious, where we are conscious of uh, being present with the Lord. So some of the key scriptures on this, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. With the thief on the cross, it's today you will be with me in paradise. Um, we have Hebrews, the cloud of witnesses cheering us on. And yep. that when we pray in chapter 12, we go to Mount Zion and they are there. The spirits of righteous men made perfect. Have they been, have they been raised? Yes. Do they ha are they in a resurrection body in a renewed earth? Not yet. Um, we have the martyrs under the altar in the book of Revelation saying, how long? So they're conscious. They're praying. 
and they're aware that that there's a, a grieving happening about this creation that's not yet been, you know. So I see all these texts. Um, so then where are they and all of that stuff? Well, place, place metaphors are really rough with this, but um, one way, one way that um, some Orthodox talk about this is they use Song of Solomon, the scripture that says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. Mm-hmm. So and and they know that they're that they're transposing that to this question, that um, when Christ says or Paul talks about death as sleep, he's, we're talking about that your your body is not uh, actively engaged with the five senses that we were born with. Your body's decomposed, and yet how do you talk about someone who's asleep but also conscious? Well, it's like a dream, except that it's it's not just um, uh, metaphorical or generated by your own heart, but it's a real experience as if of, you know, in, I had a dream this morning where I'm on the phone with somebody and I could hear them and I could talk and I could feel the phone, but, and yet my body's in my bed. And so some of them talk a little bit like that. It's like, yeah, you, your, your spirit is fully aware in the presence of God. And yes, uh, it's not yet a resurrected incorruptible body again we're we're way over our heads into mystery here but the liturgy i wanted to find for you it talks about where was christ where where was christ um on holy saturday like where, where he's talking to the thief right <clears throat> and it says something like this in his body in the tomb in his soul in the depths of hades in his spirit was a thief in paradise and on his throne at the right hand of his father. So, well, um, because when I was more of a, like a literalist, what I couldn't understand is Jesus said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's Friday. But on Sunday, he tells Mary Magdalene, I've not yet ascended to the father. I'm like, wait a minute. That, that's a, that doesn't work. <laughs> But so in the, in, the, in the ancient hymns and the liturgies, they would say, well, he's in all of these places. He's in the tomb, he's in Hades, he's in paradise, and he's at the right hand of the Father um, in different modes of being, his physical, mm-hmm. his soulish, his spiritual, his heavenly, and so on. Um, and Very so, cool. yeah, I believe that there's a conscious presence of those who've departed to be with the Lord and in communion with us at Mount Zion, though they await a resurrection body. That's how I would probably guess. I think that's the standard historic Christian faith. So that when you and I die, if the Lord doesn't come back, um, we will we will not go into a long-standing sleep, but we will come into the presence of the Lord. Paradise is a place where we'll, we will be aware of other people's presence. There will be interaction at a spiritual level. I'm asking. That's got a question mark on it. I believe so, because Hebrews 11 and 12 does seem to indicate fellowship at the throne of God. Yeah. And between the living and the living, <laughs> living here and living there, we come together at the one throne. So every time I, this is why, this is why 
the majority of Christians under, uh, you know, have no trouble interacting with saints. Um, yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because just last night I was reading some stuff on uh, one of my heroes, which is Dorothy Day. Mm -hmm. For those listening, not to be confused with Doris Day, she was Kesara Sara. My and, first uh, crush, by the way. <laughs> oh, there you go. Really, that's mine, Audrey Hepburn. So there oh, you go. There you go. Um, and um, Dorothy Day, besides being this incredible social activist, and her impact is felt still, um, she was a very traditional Catholic yep. and talked about uh, praying to the saints. Um, she prayed a lot to, to uh, St. Joseph when, when she just really needed God to come through with finances, you know. And so I was thinking about that a little bit last night. And, and most of us Protestants, certainly us evangelicals, that's one of, the, one of the rips we have on Catholicism, oh, they pray to the saints. And I'm certainly not in any place of any conclusion or anything. This is last night I was thinking about it. But, but given Revelation, given Hebrews 11 and 12, and I love that passage in Hebrews 12, you know, near the end, there, it's not totally crazy to consider the concept of praying to saints to intercede so or is tell me what you think well but just before you do that maybe can we define it because for those of us who are not in the catholic or orthodox tradition uh, but come from a more protestant uh upbringing we you know we may kind of look over the fence and sneer and go that's weird don't do that um but without much understanding of what the what those prayers are what they consist of so yes, yes. Uh, I, i'd like if you could spend a couple minutes telling us uh, what does it mean to pray to the saints? Is that is that the, is that the same as communicating with with Jesus? With that's with a really great question, Tim. Thank you. Like I just so we need to rescue your poor dad here before people think he's a heretic. Um, and, <laughs> as, and I want to assure you, it, it's not. But these definitions are very important. Okay, so here's one definition. Pray to us now in modern English means talking to God. That's praying. But it's an old English term for request and not just to God. So let's, let me talk as if I'm in Shakespearean land. Um, I pray thee, Lord. And you're just talking to your boss, right? Your Lord yeah. is, is your boss, and, and I, I'm asking, I'm making a request to my boss. That's what pray meant. So we narrowed it as modern English began to narrow it to just a religious word. So it's when you make a request. So if I use that old English sense, I, can, I could pray to you, Tim, or, and say, um, Tim, I'm going, through, I'm, I'm going through anxiety right now because we're waiting for my son's um, visa from Korea. Could you ask, could you pray and ask Jesus? Why do I need to ask you to do it? I can go to Jesus myself. Oh, wait a minute. No, we understand that intercession is a corporate ministry and that God may want to answer my prayer 
as he hears you, right? When you go to him and say, oh, and the Lord's like, yeah, Tim has asked me to help Brad and I'm going to, yes, of course I will, right? So there, so pray, so I can ask another Christian to intercede for me. Can I ask a dead Christian to intercede for me? No, because there's no such thing as a dead Christian. <laughs> Mary is alive and with the Lord. John Chrysostom is alive and with my, the Lord. My little granny Ditchfield is alive and with the Lord. Do we believe in the resurrection or not? So we would talk about departed, not dead, right? So can I ask, is it idolatry for me to ask Tim to pray for me? No. Is it idolatry to ask little granny Ditchfield to pray for me, who prayed for me on her knees every day of my life or, until she passed away? from my birth. She's on her knees praying in the, I think I'm going to ask her to pray for me. Um, would she hear me ask her to pray for me? Is she omnipresent? Absolutely not. She's at Mount Zion. Hebrews 12 says so. When yeah. I go to Mount Zion in prayer, little granny Ditchfield is there. Can I ask Tim to pray? Can I ask her to pray? Yes. Why? Because she's alive and with the Lord. Will he hear her prayers? Yes. Who will answer them? If I pray, if I pray to Saint Joseph or Saint Jude, I mean, if I'm requesting their intercession, who will answer? Jesus will. <laughs> and so, when I, I've talked to two Orthodox an Archbishop and a priest about this, and said, so, so, like, but what about we have one mediator between God and man? That's the man Christ Jesus. It's like, well, I guess we shouldn't ask anyone else to pray then, should we? It's like, no. The idea is this. Christ alone brought, brings us before his Father. And then his Father answers those prayers by means of us, our spiritual gifts. He pours out his blessings um, and his graces through the ministries that why you know we we pray to God. Why should we send? Why should we send your ministry to India? Jesus can go help them himself. No, it's through means of his servants that he answers these prayers. And those servants are alive on earth, and they're alive in paradise. And so, if we could reduce it to when I pray to a saint, I don't even like calling it that, but. When I ask, when I ask, I can ask any living Christian to intercede for me, and so I do. Um, and I'm, and I especially ask those maybe um, who I look up to and want to be like. So when I ask these priests about about like what's going on there actually, right? So Archbishop Lazar, for example, he was on a scaffold, and he fell from a high scaffold, and he face first into a stump of a tree and shattered his face. And on the way down, his instinct was to pray, St. Nicholas, save me. What he meant was, St. Nicholas, intercede for me that through your intercessions that Christ would save my life by me. I'm like, why didn't you just pray, Jesus, save me? Yeah. And he said, "Why?" Well, he said, "I guess the instinct was because Saint Nicholas was like a living uncle who was part of our household." And um, I'm like, mm -hmm. "Okay, 
well, did St. Nicholas answer your prayer? And he said, no, Jesus did. I'm like, then why? Then how do, what does this have to do with St. Nicholas? And he, he, he said, um, when we, anytime we request intercession from anyone, it is always Christ answering the prayer. And, but that may become part of the means of their theosis. In other words, if I ask you to pray for me and Christ answers the prayer, you've grown as a Christian. <laughs> That's interesting. It's part of your spiritual growth. If I ask God to, you know, Lord, would you, would, would you please feed people in India and then, and then you go feed them? It's him that fed them, but it's part of your growth as a Christian. His theory is that this continues into the next life. As we are glorified and perfected in Christ, as we grow in him, um, that, that Christ answers prayers that are off, uh, he answers intercession, but our intercession makes us more Christ-like because Christ is the great intercessor. So you, that may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I hope I've said enough to go, it's not crazy. No, you certainly, that, yeah, you've given some really helpful perspective. My, I guess my pushback, is, especially on that last story, is yeah. like words matter. And I, I know you've written a lot about in that that great most recent book of yours uh, about inclusion and, and mm. Abba. And you talk about the, the moniker versus the person. Uh, mm. But words matter. Like, so for instance, if I'm praying to St. Nicholas... There's a witness there that can very easily be missed. In turn, like if I if I tell my neighbor, oh, I prayed to Saint Nicholas and Jesus saved me, that gets confusing. Mm -hmm. If I say mm -hmm. I prayed to Jesus and Jesus showed up and Jesus intervened in my circumstances, that's a to me that's communicating something different. Yeah, well, it would be a little bit more like this. I think words matter. So we do want to communicate well. And that's why I say I don't like talking about prayer, but I, I don't mind I don't mind saying I I ask so and so to intercede. So if I say, well, part of my testimony then would be, let's say I was crippled and I went and Steve laid his hands on me. I would say I was crippled and I asked Steve to pray for me, and Jesus healed me. I, that's what we're that's what we're saying. Yeah, I guess and for I me, the one difference is that when asking for a friend to intercede for you, just staying with that metaphor, you know, when you mm -hmm. if you get healed because Steve lays hands on you and Jesus heals you, <clears throat> the person Steve is still here. So when you point to Steve, there is an immediate repointing to Christ, right? Like. Yeah. Hey, come, uh, come meet the guy, or come hear from the guy who uh, prayed for me and I was healed. <clears throat> it, when you go meet with that person, there's an immediate refocusing back to Christ. Yeah, well, and and I think that's how it should be with this as well. Mm. So John Paul II, he saw the problem you're talking about, and he tried to correct it. Mm. He really believed that. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was instrumental in saving his life when he was shot by the would-be assassin. Hmm. And so he, he would, was very devoted to Mary. But he saw how Catholics take their eyes off Jesus 
almost to the point of like, I don't want to talk to him. I'll talk to Mary. And part of the problem is, well, of course, if you're doing 10 rosaries for every one, our father, where's the focus? It's on Mary. So I was researching my first book about, about uh, hearing God and seeing God and all of that. And so I looked up, um, I, I, I looked up this idea of gazing prayer because I'd seen people um, in their spirit when they'd gaze on Christ, they'd have physical healings. So I, I just Googled at the time. I don't know what the browser was, but I, I, Googled, um, I Googled gazing prayer. And there was an encyclical or an epistle by John Paul II to Catholics about gazing on Christ. And here's what he said to try to correct the dysfunction. He said, uh, when you pray, you stand before the throne of grace. Who is on the throne of grace but Jesus Christ? When you go to the throne of grace, focus on Jesus Christ. Because you're Catholic, you're going to look for Mary. And there she will be, no doubt. You'll find her there. But notice what she's doing. She's gazing on Christ with undiverted attention. Hmm. Emulate her. So in other words, he's, tr he's trying to say, if you learn anything from identifying with the saints at the throne of grace, learn this, that they always gaze on Jesus and their prayers are directed to him. Be like them. Let them disciple you in that way. And I thought, oh, that corrects the whole problem. So in the Orthodox tradition, by the way, you know, for every time I might invoke the prayers of a saint, I'm... I'm probably saying the Jesus prayer, mm. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, um, you know, 10,000 times. So there's not an emphasis problem there. It's mm. just like once in a while, I'm like, I could use some help here. Who could pray for me? Steve, Tim, good. Eden, yep. Granny, yep. Chrysostom, sure. <laughs> um, pray for me. And then I go back to Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. So I, I don't want to minimize the dysfunction that's come in through this. I just want to say... All Christians did this in the first, in the early church. They, and it was not so much about the power of the saints to answer their prayers. It was a, it was a witness of the resurrection. Yeah. It's not necromancy because they're not dead. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, our discussion with Brad actually went on for another hour beyond that. So I'm going to split that second hour into another episode and you're going to have to wait a whole week for it. But the wait will be worth it. Next week, you'll hear us discuss the nature of Scripture and how we can best approach and interpret Scripture. In the meantime, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Impact Nations podcast by clicking on one of the subscribe buttons at impactnations.com slash podcast. If you're already subscribed, why don't you share it with a few friends? The more listeners we've got, the bigger the Impact Nations family grows and the more kingdom work we can get done together. Thanks and have a great week.